Welcome to Quarantine Creatives. I'm Heath Rosella. I cannot believe it, you guys, but we are coming up in a matter of weeks on one year of this show. I started this in May of 2020 in my attic just as a way to deal with the recent pandemic at that point. We were two months in, and I've said it before, but I didn't know at the time if we were going to be in this pandemic for another three weeks or another three months. I certainly didn't expect to be here a year later, still mid-pandemic, and uh, just chatting about it with you guys. But I think one of the things that has just been crazy on top of all the disease and coronavirus and all that, which is its own separate issue, is just how much this world has fundamentally changed in the last year, too. The pandemic actually has some responsibility for that, the way that we live, the way that we work, telecommuting and, you know, remote learning for kids and It's just all new things that we didn't know about a year ago. I remember when I got invited to my first Zoom, I'm like, what is Zoom? I've never heard of it. And now it's a thing that we use practically daily. But also the racial justice movements around the killing of George Floyd and, you know, that continuing conversation, certainly through this last year, and now bringing Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders into that conversation as well. You know, the election brought out a lot of things. And now here we are. With Joe Biden, 100 days or so into office, and it feels like a completely different era. So I feel like I have been really drawn to projects that explore that. I talked to Kahani Cooperman, who made the amazing film The Antidote earlier this year. Uh, We had a conversation about kindness, and I also talked to Craig Dentrone from PBS American Portrait, which is a huge series that was all self-shot by people around the country, looking at what it means to be an American right now. And today's interview is in a similar vein, but we talk about completely different issues and from a completely different angle. So, you know, I'm loving these types of stories. I hope you guys are as well. My guests today are Stephen Asher and Jeannie Jordan. They are Boston-based filmmakers, and uh, they have a new film out on HBO called Our Towns. And it looks at what is happening in small towns across the country They went to Charleston, West Virginia, Bend, Oregon, Eastport, Maine, Sioux Falls, South Dakota, Columbus, Mississippi, places like that to really dig in and to try to figure out just what the story of America is right now. And this project is actually an adaptation of a book by James and Deborah Fallows. Uh, They have been reporting on these changes across the country. And then the Fallows teamed up with Stephen and Jeannie, and they made this film together, the four of them as as co-collaborators. And I should mention Stephen and Jeannie are married as well, so they're not just collaborators, but uh, a married couple. So there's a lot of kind of interesting overlapping, you know, just personality and relationship things with them and the Fallows that we get into, but also their filmmaking technique. And their film was all shot just prior to the pandemic starting, but obviously is being released in a time where COVID exists and where our world is even more different than when they went out to survey it. So they've updated parts of the film, mostly with voiceover, to just talk about where we are. So Our Towns, it's streaming now on HBO. It's airing on HBO. Go check it out. It's really, it's an interesting film. And uh, we had a great conversation about it. Here it is, my interview with Stephen Asher and Jeannie Jordan. So I want to just start with sort of the big picture question of how this past year or so, you know, this pandemic year has been for you guys. Well, I mean, the amazing thing about this project is that we've been working on it for three years oh. and we miraculously got done shooting before the lockdown. Oh, great. Right before. Right yeah. before the lockdown. 
And in fact, it, kind of the last thing before things were totally shut down was the fellows came. We, we were in Boston and they're in D.C. Yep. And they came up and recorded some voiceover in our studio. You know, then we were editing and editing is already a lot like self-quarantine. You know, you're down there in a dark room all day. Right. Sure. Uh, so we kept doing that. <laughs> <laughs> Just stay away from everyone. You're already sort of set up for that. Exactly. Right. So it it actually turned out to be actually perfect timing, which is pretty amazing given what a terrible thing it was. Sure. But just not having other distractions and things, you could just kind of focus on the editing process. Right. Well, also, I mean, we can maybe talk about it later, but also the kind of the meaning of the film really changed through the pandemic. And uh, we also had to kind of readjust how the film was structured because of it. So, but, you know, we can get to that later. Yeah, well, I mean, let's jump into it. It's uh, It's interesting because, yeah, there are definitely... You can tell that all the filming was done prior, but as you say, they're primarily through voiceover, sort of new context is added to the footage that you captured. You know, talk right. to me, I guess, about that process of just sort of how the editorial treatment changed because of what we were all going through. Well, in the early days of the pandemic, you know, before there was any idea that there was going to be a vaccine, we, you know, we would look at this footage and think we've captured a way of life that we may never come back or we don't know when it's going to come back. And you would look at these scenes of things like a climbing gym in Bend with densely packed people yeah. and think that we're looking at a historical artifact. <laughs> right. And then we, we figured we the film had to address the pandemic in some way. But we also knew that that was a moving target and we couldn't get too specific about that. But I think what you know, what you see in the framing of the final film was that we realized that in a sense, when we started the film, it was a film about those towns. A typical viewer would be seeing how other towns have pulled themselves back from hard times. And now every town is dealing with that in some form. So it, it really kind of made the film more universal. Yeah. And I think we're all kind of redefining what community means, too, in this time, right? Absolutely. And And one of the other things that was quite interesting about this is uh, one of the things that really stood out in Bend was how many remote workers there were there. And oh, yeah. We were editing the film and starting the film. We That was something we sort of had to explain and just how that really worked and how many people <laughs> yeah. were doing it. What is remote work, right? Yes, exactly. And now it's like everywhere and you know, Ben looks like they were prescient in some way. Right. <laughs> and even the idea of like the relationship between cities and smaller places and places where people want to live, because prior to the pandemic, it was, you know, there were a lot of jobs you could only do in a big city or you had to do at your company. And now that you have the ability to live pretty much anywhere and do so many different kinds of jobs, uh, it really changes the the kind of the texture of the country in a fundamental way. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. It'll be really fascinating, I think, to watch, you know, over the next six months or so, just what does work even look like? You know, like, are are people going to stay right. remote? Are they going to go to a hybrid model? Are companies going to demand people be in person? And if those companies yep. do, you know, do they retain their workforce? Who knows? It's We're, we're in fluid times for sure. Right. Yes. Um, I want to kind of back up, too, and just sort of understand how you guys first became involved with this film. And, you know, so you're partnering with, with James and Deborah Fallow, as you mentioned. Like, did they come to you? Did you come to them? How did you first get attached to this? Well, actually, HBO optioned Jim and Deb's book, uh -huh. Our Towns, 
in, you know, when they were actually, I think, still in galleys. So very early on, they optioned the book. And Lisa Heller, who is uh, one of the executive producers for HBO, called us and said she wanted us to work on this. And she wanted to set us up on a double blind date with the fellows who uh-huh. we've never met. But we, we told we knew all about their work, yep. had a lot of admiration for him. And so that's kind of that's how it started. We met, we all clicked, we think a lot alike, we are a lot alike, and off we went. Yeah. There's this interesting idea that, you know, you guys are a, a filmmaking couple, they're a reporting couple. People that, that live and work together are that's kind of an interesting thing on its own but then when you put two of that together like i can imagine that could go many different ways i guess like talk to me about just sort of how you built that creative partnership between the four of you well i mean it it was really interesting for us because our skills and interests uh, overlap in certain ways and they're very different in other ways and just in the sense of translating this book to a film you know, we didn't so much think of us as remaking their film, their book, or, you know, making it as a film as much as kind of leveraging the ideas that are in the book. You know, the things that you need to do to make a film and the motor that drives a film is very different than, you know, the kind of reportage that they do, you know, so they were really kind of astonished by what went into making a film that they had no experience with before. And we, you know, really enjoyed seeing how they went into towns and uh, tried to get the, the the bead on them. The other thing I'd say is, you know, as couples working together for a long time, we're all, you know, of a certain age and we've been working together a good part of our lives. Yeah. And you work out ways to, as a couple that you kind of hand things back and forth Steve and I both work on sort of everything, and it became clear that Jim and Deb do the same thing. Uh-huh. And often they separate. We separate from each other and do things. And they told us pretty early on that when they wrote the book, they got a small house in Redlands, California, where Jim's originally from. And they each took a different floor, <laughs> and they just they wrote, but they didn't write together. Yeah, they wrote in parallel. They wrote uh, in parallel. And if you look at the book, that each section is identified by who is writing that section. Yeah. And it reminded Steve and I a lot of the way that we work, and also the fact that we each were very attuned in within the couple. It seemed like the four of us quickly had a shorthand as well, yeah. um, which we found pretty fascinating. I'm curious, too, like the documentary in a lot of ways, it reads like a first person doc. It feels like it's their story and that they're kind of the the, the filmmaking hand manipulating it. That, that was sort of the impression that I got in watching it. It didn't feel like a third person coming in and, and watching their story objectively, if that makes sense. And I, I wonder just for you guys as filmmakers, like figuring out how to tell that story and, and sort of where you're there to facilitate their storytelling and and when you're bringing your piece to it. Well, I would say Steve and I are uh, basically our personal filmmakers in so many ways. Yeah. We've done personal films and we also try to make any film we we're working on with about someone else become personal for them. Yep. 
it was important to us, and we told Jim and Deb really early that we wanted it to feel like a personal film, which is, I'm really gratified that you said that. Um, people haven't so much picked up on that, but we we told them we wanted this to really feel like their story because they have a fascinating take on the world and on life yeah. and have traveled together their whole lives. And it felt very important to us that their personalities be in the film. And part of their personalities is that long-term travel that they've done together. So I'm glad to hear it feels that way to you because it feels very much that way to us. And, and also, you know, we saw our job as reinterpreting their work and adding our own perspective to that. But part of the way that that happens is we subsume ourselves in their, you know, in a story that feels like it just emerges. Yeah. So there are certainly things in the film that came, you know, were our perspective or, you know, there, there are lots of scenes in the film where they are there and doing interviews. There are a lot of scenes where they're not there. The point, you know, the, in the net effect of the film is you just, don't ask that question. Right. Well, and also we made that, I think that the personal connection is made because everywhere we went, we just sort of sat down with them and just let them talk. And it's those little interstitial Jim and Deb together talking that really make them feel so like it's so much a part of them. Yeah. Well, you know, talking about personal filmmaking, and I know you guys have done this several times too, but, you know, on this project, you're both co-producers, you're both co-directors, and you're both co-editors. Those, to me, feel like three very different jobs and require three very different skill sets. And I wonder just sort of how you guys navigate those three different jobs as they are and then navigate doing both of them together. Well, so we once did a film about Jeannie's family and her dad, who you know, was an independent farmer, a small farmer, where you have to have every skill on the farm to be able to do it, you know, yeah. raising animals, planting crops, doing the money, you know, so we can do all of it. Happily, we can do all of those things. One of the ways that we divide things up is that one of us takes the lead on certain things at different times. I mean, not, not unlike uh, raising a kid, you know, where it's not like you're all doing exactly the same thing at the same time. You kind of hand things back and forth. When we write, for example, we'll often write in certain in different rooms and then pass things back and forth later. In this film, Jeannie really took the lead in finding the stories remotely, which was an incredibly hard job to dial into these towns. We didn't we weren't able to pre-scout them. Oh, wow. And find these stories. And then Steve, of course, is shooting along with uh, Brian Harvey, who's another brilliant cinematographer who is also the drone pilot. Yeah. And also then Steve would take the lead in editing because each time we came home from a town, I had to start working on the next town and we needed to pull together what we had gotten in the last town. So it was kind of a leapfrogging, you know, long-term way of working. And we've always worked like that. And I'd also say before we met each other, we each had pretty long careers. I mean, we each had done, I did a lot of editing. Steve did a lot of shooting. So there are ways that we brought sort of basic skills that we each knew that we were very firmly established in and then kind of combined our talents. Yeah. And then, you know, in the final creation and structuring of the film, the storytelling aspect is the most important. And 
we're completely equals in, you know, we, we screen our cuts and we go off and have a, a production meeting afterwards and talk about what worked and what didn't and what might change. And that's a, that's a totally co-equal process for us. And that's not to say that we don't um, argue. <laughs> We're, we've gotten really good at compartmentalizing work and the rest of our lives over the years. And yeah. also... We're very good at, at listening to each other, disagreeing, and then going off and quietly incorporating the other one's idea into what we're doing. <laughs> it's kind of all under the table, but we're listening to it each works. other very well. <laughs> and whatever process works, too. I mean, I guess that's that's the key. Yes, exactly. Yeah. I wonder, though, too, like, I feel like there are there are two different approaches, right? That, like, when you produce and shoot and cut your own material— like, you know, that works so intimately, you know, even in, in pre-production, you're sort of planning like, OK, I know I want this shot. So I got to make time in the schedule for that. And then you're going to make sure because you're cutting it that that shot makes it in. There are times, you know, my background is, is producing and directing. And I know, like, I'll sit down with an editor and they'll say, I know you wanted this, but take a look at this idea. And it's sometimes 180 what I wanted but it just completely works yeah. and having that other perspective in there, like they're both valid, I guess. Right. And I guess I just wonder, like if you, if you miss sometimes having that other perspective or, or do you provide that for each other? Like just how do you kind of avoid tunnel vision, yeah. I guess, in your process? Well, first of all, it is a tremendous advantage when you are shooting and directing to know that you're also cutting right. because when I'm shooting, I'm, I don't know exactly where the scene is going, but I'm trying to shape it in it and get the elements that you know, you're going to need, which are, it's much harder when those things are separated. Sure. You know, sometimes people who shoot aren't really thinking about the whole story that needs to be told and all the elements you need to get. So that I think really works well. Then when it comes to like deciding what works, we're both really tough critics of our own stuff and, have the ability also to look at something as though we hadn't done it. Mm. You know, like you take a few days off and then you look at it and it's like you can be surprised by it and, yeah. you know, just really feel whether it's working or not. And I, I spent most of my early career editing for a lot of different people, a lot of different situations, both drama and documentaries. So I have that per, that editor in me all the time yep. that is saying, I know you want this, <laughs> but it doesn't work as well as this. So, I mean, I think that the years of being that person, that never leaves you. And right. there's a way that you know when you've gotten too involved with something that you just need to let it go. Um, <laughs> I mean, so. And, you know, two, two other things to mention. One is we also, you know, Lisa Heller was our executive and Nancy Abraham were our, our executive producers at HBO who had some wonderfully helpful notes along the way and incredible support, you know, and then also the initial kind of cut of the film was like two hours and 20 minutes. And we just knew that if this film was too long, it would lose people. There would just be too much in it. But it also needed to be long enough that it had the texture and density that it does. So yeah. that was re a very hard process of letting go of things that had been hard to shoot or that, we, you know, we felt bad that we had taken somebody's afternoon filming them and they weren't going to end up in the movie. Yeah, those were hard letters to write. Yeah. yeah. Thank you for giving us like a day out of your lives. And I'm 
so sorry, but you're not going to be in the film. That's no fun to tell Mm -hmm. people that, but we actually really believe that you should tell people that before the film goes out there because people need to know whether or not they're going to see themselves. Yeah. Well, I want to ask you, too, you mentioned, you know, your DP uh, doing some drone work as well. And there's a really interesting blend between, you know, a lot of drone work in the film, which is beautiful. And like, it's one of those things that, you know, five, 10 years ago, that was like prohibitively expensive to do. And now you see it, and you're just like, mm-hmm. how did we tell stories without this tool? But also a really right. interesting blending between, you know, near drone work, really high elevation, you know, it looks like, you know, I don't know, 1500, 2000 foot up, which I'm guessing maybe is from the plane and then kind of blending that into yeah. to Google Earth as well. And that that's just yeah. such an interesting way to sort of approach all that. I, I, I'm curious if you, you know, what your thoughts are, I guess, on the visual execution. Well, it's, it's great that you picked up on that. So, you know, first of all, as soon as we read the book, it was clear this story had to be told in part from the air. Yeah. That, you know, the fellows flew around at 4,000 feet, which is much lower than a commercial airplane. And they learned a lot about the country from what they could see at that altitude. So we knew there had to be an aerial component. So we have, um, you know, the 4,000 foot thing, which is sometimes Google Earth. Yeah. At the time that we did it, we were the first film to use Google Earth Studio, which oh, cool. is a even more sophisticated, kind of giving you the same control that After Effects would give you to really move around things. And there are certain kind of synthetic shots that you can't even tell that they aren't actually video. Yeah. So that's the highest altitude. Then there's the drone can go up to 400 feet, then on the ground level. And Brian is also a really skilled uh, camera operator with a stabilizer, a Moby stabilizer. So the kind of floating portraits, which also have that kind of fluid motion that a drone can have, So we really wanted to kind of keep that sense of the camera in flight at different heights uh, throughout. Yeah. Interesting. I I want to get into some of the content of the film, too, because it really struck me. And just, you know, quick aside, sort of my background, you know, I produced Ask This Old House for a long time and traveled, you know, all around the country with that show. So, like, I I got to go to all 50 Uh states with Mm -hmm. them and, you know, sometimes big cities like, you know, Atlanta or Los Angeles or whatever. But often, you know, smaller markets, too. We went to Chattanooga and uh, places in Montana and Idaho and just like all over the place. So there was a lot in in the film that was really familiar to me. But you talk about in the film this idea of uh, small town mentality and and that it's sort of similar. I think maybe it was a guest uh, that you were interviewing that had brought that up that, you know, it's kind of the same all across the country, this sort of a civic pride, I guess, or like, I, I, I guess I wonder just in traveling to all these different places, what did you kind of learn? What did you see there on the ground? Well, I, I mean, I think that we saw a lot of different things, but one, one thing I, I grew up on a farm near a very small town. So uh-huh. I sort of have that mentality in my head, but I think the thing that struck us and I know it struck Jim and Deb, as they were traveling around, is that all of these towns really felt that they were a best kept secret. Yeah. That if people knew how great that town is, that they would move there and want to live there. And that was something that I think a lot of people just don't understand. A lot of people would think, boy, I don't want to live in Sioux Falls, South Dakota. You know, they know nothing about it, but they think that. And once you're on the ground in all of these towns, 
people, they have great lives and they, they want to keep improving them and they want to keep improving their town. Yeah. I mean, it, it's interesting too, just there is so much similarity in the U.S., right? And I mean, you can trace that to McDonald's or Target or what, you know, there's yeah. a lot of very similar, right. you know, kind of roadside things and stuff. But there are unique factors to each place, too. And I wonder just if you picked up on anything that sort of like what was it that differentiated, you know, Sioux Falls from uh, from Columbus, Mississippi? Well, I mean, there are huge differences of the towns that we went to. Huge differences in scales, huge differences in racial makeup. I mean, you know, ben, we address it in Bend, Oregon. It's 90 percent white. Yeah. That could not be a bigger difference between that and San Bernardino. Yeah. You know, uh, Eastport, Maine is 1,300 people. The difference is, you know, there is that little section in the film about, you know, the box stores and the uniformity and how, you know, every place, the landscape has been desecrated. Yeah. But really the kind of the, the vibe and energy of these towns were all very different. One of the big themes in the film is kind of the trajectory that they're on. And, you know, as Jim says in the film, you know, the country's always been in trouble and it's always getting itself out of trouble. And each of these places that we went to were at different points in their trajectories. Like San Bernardino, you know, was a thriving place that was really knocked back when the Air Force Base closed and other reasons they're still trying to recover. Yeah. Bend also was knocked back when the timber industry crashed in the 80s, but they have actually reinvented themselves as a tourist destination. You know, but then we're also interested in how success also has cost to it. There definitely were, were kind of different kinds of energy in the different places that we went. That is a theme that I picked up on, too, was just sort of the reliance on a big industry, whether it was timber or, you know, the, the Air Force in San Bernardino or, you know, whatever was the industry. And when that leaves town, suddenly you're left with nothing. I mean, it came up in Charleston, West Virginia as well. And I don't know. Yeah. I, I feel right. like that's that's just been repeating itself over the last 40 years or so in different pockets across the country. Like, And I don't know you know, globalization is just, it's a thing that had to happen, I guess. And it's, it's where we are, but there's a part of me that kind of mourns for like, oh man, like if we had only kept these jobs here, I don't know. I mean, I, I hear what you're saying and I know exactly what you're talking about. I mean, there's something very sad about a, a town that was a timber town. There's not a timber town at all anymore, right. but you look at someplace like Eastport, Maine, it has been a sardine town. Uh, lobster town, you know, over the years, they keep reinventing themselves um, to keep going. And on some levels, I think more and more American towns are understanding they have to diversify. Yeah. They can't just be one thing. Well, and also, as you see in Columbus, Mississippi, we joke that they made, you know, hot dogs and toilet seats, and, you know, and, the, and blue jeans. Yeah. And, you know, those industries went away. But then they very deliberately found a way to recreate themselves in high-tech manufacturing. It didn't just fall in their lap. They created a whole agency to kind of lure in companies. And it's been really successful in bringing in automakers and all sorts of factories that uh, otherwise would never have come there. Being proactive is a huge part of digging out of something that is no longer working. Yeah. And I feel like that's a lesson that, 
you know, there's been this, I mean, it's, it's a Reagan holdover, I feel like, that, like, government shouldn't be doing anything. Government shouldn't have a hand in, in what the market wants or, you know, what job should yeah. come there. And you guys talk to a lot of politicians in the film, you know, that yeah. have actively played a role, as you say, in, in attracting industry, in, in building something, you know, whether it's tourism or manufacturing or, or whatever it is. It doesn't just come yep. out of the ground like like anything. You've got to plant it and water it and fertilize yeah. it and watch it grow. Right? River, Riverside, California, they put all that money into the mission in and making the downtown be attractive. Yeah. And then private investment follows. Yeah. I mean, it's it, you need you need the government for a part of it and then you need the industry for a part of it. And they they need to kind of work yep. hand in hand. And, and the other piece that you touch on, too, is the role of local news in all this and that. You know, that's been really troubling for me over the last, you know, whatever, 20, 25 years. I mean, the Internet has been a huge factor in that, but so has consolidation and all sorts of other things. You know, it seems like the more vibrant communities have a vibrant press of some kind. Right. And this is something that, you know, both Jim and Deb have their heartfelt causes and local newspapers is one of Jim's. Yeah. It's like a, a town that has a good paper thriving on some level it just it has a heartbeat and when you see towns lose that you really i mean i i've seen this all over iowa it it becomes more and more centralized in a big town and pretty soon you don't know really anything about the local industry though you know the city council or the anything because the schools yeah because you don't have that reportage that's just like every day on the ground, right there, bond issues, you name it, library. That was something that just, it it kind of broke our hearts, but we were also really hardened because a lot of the towns we went to had great little newspapers. The Quaddy Tides in Eastport, Maine yeah. is a fabulous newspaper. I don't know if you noticed this, the, age of the computers that they use is <laughs> yeah. like leading edge or yeah. you know it's amazing it gets the job done though i guess i mean it's it's pretty wild yeah. windows set <laughs> <laughs> i love the observation too i think this was one that jim had made in the film but the idea that most reporters are generally introverts and that the idea of being a yeah. reporter and, and sort of having that as a almost a disguise, <laughs> that it gives you an excuse to talk to people that you might not otherwise right. have. I wonder if you guys feel that as filmmakers as well. Sure. I mean, I don't even I'm not sure I even think of it so much as about shyness as just that documentary filmmaking is this opportunity to intersect with these unbelievably interesting worlds that you would otherwise have no ability to contact or, you know, really get in deep on. And in our particular filmmaking, you know, some of the other films that we've done, like So Much So Fast and Raising Renee, it's a kind of intimacy with our subjects that is like becoming family. The films take a long time. You're with them over a lot of big life changes. And that's an incredible privilege to be that close to people. Right. And anybody that we've made a film with, we're still close to. You can't do something like that with people and, and not just have a bond. Like Jim and Deb are friends for life and because we've just been through an amazing thing together. Yeah. What was, you know, the editing process? Now, you talked about it a little bit at the beginning, but like during COVID and, you know, getting different cuts of the film together like, obviously, you couldn't be in the same room with them, but how heavily were they weighing in on the editorial piece of, you know, the actual 
the the rough cuts and things of the film. So that's what what was kind of miraculous about the fellows is they were 100% hands off. Mm. We made cuts. We would send them to them. Uh, one of the most gratifying comments anybody has ever made about anything we've done was uh, we sent them. We the first test case was Charleston, uh-huh. and Deb reported that Jim jumped up out of his chair and said. Jesus Christ, Deb. They really know what they're doing. Wow. (laughs) And it was like, you are the filmmakers. Yeah. So, you know, at every juncture, we would just show them stuff. We were totally open to any comments they had. They were incredibly happy with what we were doing, what we were writing. You know, so if you want to talk about some more other COVID things that happened, we set up uh, remote recording from their house to ours so Uh that they could do new takes of voiceover. Color grading was in part done remotely. Mixing was done remotely. All sorts of things that one would have done, as you know, in a studio with whoever's doing it. Uh, we did it remotely. Wow. I, I want to say that the thing with Jim and Deb is they are so good at what they do that they didn't need to be good at what we do. Mm. You, do you know what I mean? Sure, if, they, yeah. if there was something they felt strongly about, they said it. It was always right on. And when it came time to actually do the narration, often we'd sift it back and forth between all of us trying to find just the right words and to, to make it be something that, that felt natural to them. So it was really kind of an amazing process that to, to, to do that kind of thing, have that kind of collaboration and not have any kind of tension. Yeah, to let them just have full trust in you guys too and to just let go and say okay great you know you do your part you know that's awesome right and so you know and and also just technically speaking you know in the structure of the way the deal was worked out you know they're executive producers we're the producer directors so they they didn't sign on to make the film yeah as much as to you know to participate in what we would ask them to do that's great I want to ask kind of big picture just about filmmaking and stuff like for you guys, as you've talked about, you've, you've both had really successful careers and, you know, have been able to to tell the stories that you like telling. And it seems like generally kind of in the way that you like telling them, what does it take to get to that point? I guess, like what, what was the work to get to the point where you can kind of do what you like and, and still pay the bills doing that? It's never been, uh, just that, you know, starting with our earliest films, we've always had to do other work along the way to pay the bills or, you know, even Troublesome Creek. We had to write a lot of grants, but Jeannie was editing films. I was shooting other films. We've always had to do projects that, you know, often are end up being interesting, but not something we would do if we didn't need to make money. Sure. Uh, particularly these kinds of documentaries that can take many years uh, just because the story has to have its time to play out, whatever. This is the first time where we were hired to do a film. And the the miracle of HBO is that they really supported us to make the best film that we could make. So we kind of had the best of both worlds, the, the support of a big corporation, but also the freedom to really try to do this in the way that we thought was right. They wanted us to do it in the way we've done our other films, which, I mean, I think it's why they called us. But the fact of the matter is that uh, there was a part of me always that at the last minute, 
some executive producers just come in and say, oh, no, I want it all different. Right. And so there was a part of us, I think, that thought, is that going to happen? But absolutely, it did not. And, and they don't operate by committee. Yeah. They are, you know, you're dealing with a few people. They know what they like. And they, you know, it, it just couldn't have been a better process. Yeah. And they're there for your voice, which is great. Right. Yes. Oh, and the other thing I didn't mention is that uh, I also have taught film and I write the filmmaker's handbook, which, you know, kind of every five years I have to rewrite that book. And yeah. that takes usually a, a year or more. Wow. So we've never been just in a place where we can just make our own films, but we've, it's always been tremendously important to us that we have our own projects going and we will do other things and sacrifice in other ways in order to keep those going. Yeah. How do you figure out that balance between like, you know, okay, I got called for, I don't know, a, a three week freelance job and I, you know, I can go do that, but I'm right at this critical point on this thing I've been working on, you know, like, do I say yes to the paycheck or keep the passion project going right. or, you know, like, how do you, how do you balance those? I mean, I, I think that we never dropped something that was really important at any, a crucial time yeah. if another job came up. However, because we do kind of long-term things, we know that if a good-paying job that is something that we're interested in comes up, you know, we, we do it. The blessing of this is that really for the first time ever, we did not have to do that. Yeah. yeah. And when I first was getting into film, I was working around the MIT film section where there was a kind of general ethos that one or two people could do everything and make make a film, you know, kind of like the way you'd write a book. Sure. And so I, I got all of those skills. And the way that has really paid off in our lives is that we can make a film without hiring anyone if we needed to. Yeah. I mean, it depends on the scale of it. This, this one we could not have, but we certainly have done films where we are the only people involved. So it means that we can take a risk on a project and not have to be paying salaries and you know, doing a more corporate structure. Often in, including paying ourselves salaries. Yeah, no, yeah, not paying ourselves yeah, salaries. Exactly. <laughs> Just hoping that at some point the effort will be worth it for some Right, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> All right, Stephen Asher and Jeannie Jordan there. Go check out their film, Our Towns. It's on HBO right now, and it is on demand uh, for a couple more weeks. So, go watch it. It is just, it's so interesting. And, you know, obviously I geeked out about the filmmaking part of it, but the content is really interesting as well. And uh, I think there's stuff to learn there. Our Towns, HBO, go watch it. I have new episodes of Quarantine Creatives every Thursday. Make sure you hit subscribe in your favorite podcast app to be among the first to listen to it. And if you ever miss a show, I summarize each episode in a weekly newsletter. It comes out on Sundays and I add some of my thoughts as well. Go to HeathRosella.com and enter your email, and you'll get that newsletter right in your inbox. I will talk to you guys soon. Stay safe. 